Welcome to episode 181 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Welcome back to another episode, and I'm continuing my series of things I'm thankful for this month as an SLP, and um, this is not sponsored, by the way, when I share products as part of this, but I am going to put another plug in for Easy Report Pro. I had um, mm-hmm. three evaluations due this week, and um, as on top of 28 progress reports. <laughs> so, and getting ready for ASHA. And I was able to, from start to finish, score by hand a self and put the scores in and have an eight page report written in about less than an hour using Easy Report Pro and got feedback from, I sent it to another SLP because the student was switching schools, got feedback from her like, this is a beautiful report. This is a beautiful, she's added tables in there too of wow. the, with the normal curve and mm-hmm. um, all of the results that the kid had on the normal curve. And I told this as other SLP, I was like, Easy Report Pro. You have to get it. You have to get it. So um, we love Michelle Boisvert, uh, the developer of it, and she's a good friend of the program. So um, like I said, this isn't sponsored, but with a couple of just putting the scores in and writing the kid's name and clicking a couple of boxes, and then you can have a report written. Sure. And Michelle, and, and I and Michelle, if you hear this, thank you again. But she lectured to my diagnostics class this past oh, great. week and uh, discussed how, you know, using technology yes. to make our lives easier and better right. and more efficient. And, of course, yep. he did mention Easy Report Pro, but she also talked about other systems that are out there, too, other different products that you could, you know, tap into. Yeah. yeah, I actually had, um, I taught a student today, we were talking about AI with, uh, I have a student that's really highly motivated by writing his own comic book. So I've used that to target his um, um, articulation goals, as well as his uh, grammar goals that he has. But we talked about like how to put a sentence that he's written into chat GPT and have it test things like is all of this, he has a really hard time Mm -hmm. with uh, keeping verb tense all the same throughout Mm -hmm. the sentence. So how to put it into there. And then it it highlighted for him which ones he needed to change. And it taught him rather than just correcting him too. So I'm I'm all for teaching our kids how to use the technology rather than being afraid of it as well. I agree 100%. And I encourage my graduate students to sign up for Easy Report Pro. Yeah. And, uh, and, use it you know right. and 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 michelle had made some good points and what what are we going to do anyway is that we're going to have a template somewhere exactly exactly and we're gonna and and, and slps cut and paste from templates yep. all the time in the old way of doing reports yeah well <laughs> if you're doing that it's a, virtually the same thing but right. just 10 times better. And this way, you're not going to accidentally leave someone the wrong name or the wrong pronoun somewhere in the report. Exactly. 
And she, she used that as an example. You know, it's, we've yeah. all done that. We've all looked yep. down in the middle of the meeting and we had the wrong name throughout the whole report. Yep. Because we know, copied and pasted. <laughs> exactly. And it, and it just kills our credibility and all yes. those things. So if my students can learn how to be efficient using technology, that's what I want them to be able to do. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, putting all that in, getting the scores, then they can spend their time talking about what it means, what the, right. you know, what those results mean. Right. How are we going to treat this? Yep. So let's see. On the podcast today, we have Julie Roberts. And you may have heard about Julie. She is an, an SLP that has been diagnosed as being neurodiverse. And she is joining us to talk about some things that she's been advocating for and to talk a little bit about uh, the Therapist Neurodiversity Collective, Great. which I think has a lot of resources for us. Yeah. Let's hear Julie. We want to congratulate Presence for reaching the incredible milestone of 6 million remote evaluations and teletherapy sessions. Presence is a pioneer in special education and mental health teletherapy, and they're making a real impact in solving the national shortage of school clinicians with nearly 10,000 pre-K to 12th grade schools supported across the nation. At Presence, they're on a mission to empower schools and clinicians by breaking down the traditional barriers to success through their elevated approach to teletherapy. As a trusted partner and advocate for clinicians since 2009, Presence offers its large community of teletherapy providers access to an award-winning platform with assessment and therapy materials, continuing education, and networking opportunities to help them succeed. Through ongoing clinically-led resources and support, Presence is meeting the needs and creating career opportunities for clinicians today, wherever they are. Presence is teletherapy elevated. Learn more at Presence.com. Well, Julie, welcome to the podcast. And if you don't mind, can you share about how you became a speech-language pathologist? Sure. So I've been practicing for almost a quarter of a century. Um, my undergraduate degree is actually in history because I was oh. going to be an attorney and go to oh, law wow. school. And then um, I had my son right before I graduated with my undergraduate degree. And so I stayed home with him um, for two years. When he was born, he had anoxia, uh, umbilical cord around his neck. and they were telling, you know, I had read like what's what to do when you're expecting and all that, but they didn't say like all of these developmental milestones. They were my pediatricians were telling me, you're gonna need to very watch very carefully your child because they've been on oxygen for three days, they were critical. Apgar scar was or score was really bad. So I became hyper focused on his developmental milestones and reading. And it became really interesting to me. And I thought, I, I like working with kids. And, you know, at that time, I didn't know a whole lot about it. I had great grades to go into law school. Mm -hmm. But I, I went back to my my um, college and I said, I, I think I might want to be a speech pathologist. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the department head wrote me a great uh, um, 
recommendation. And so I had to take a year of leveling courses, you know, because right. I think undergrads take fanatics and things like that. And then once I got into it, it was just fascinating to me because there's so many different things you can do as a speech pathologist. And I have done a lot of different things as a speech pathologist. That's awesome. So it's so interesting. You're on that that law path early on and, and total <laughs> total change. That's great. And and where, where did you go to school? Um, my graduate degree is from UT Dallas, Callier Center. Wow. For me, it's, I love them because they've always had a big interest in hearing loss there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a big program there. So that's sort of my my background, my area. So what has been some of your experience as a speech-language pathologist? And then we want to get to something else about uh, about you, about a characteristic. Of, uh, so you're talking about my jobs, right? Mm-hmm. What, have, what have I done? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I... I started out in the public school system and quickly decided that I didn't want to be a district employee. I wanted to be a contractor. And so I started contracting and then I got where I was comfortable. And so I opened a private practice and I had a pretty successful private practice for about 10 years. And then in my state, insurance changed significantly and the rates that I was getting were gone. And so I had to let go of my employees and just basically reinvent myself. So at that time I got headhunted by um, a pretty big rehab company, worked for them for a while, got headhunted again by, at that time it was the largest um, rehab company in the United States. And I was hired on as a clinical educator and then promoted into the role of a national director. And so I did that. And then um, I got really sick with cancer and uh, stopped working at all. And then um, I got better. And so I started back in the schools, which I love. And I'm a contractor, so I, you know, have a lot of flexibility and the school district I'm in right now, um, they're very amenable to everything I'm telling them about research. So that's been yeah. nice. I've had a lot of autonomy Great. in my job. So excellent. Well, I understand the cancer battle. So been there. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um so you mentioned the research and your uh the the other side of you or or your core. Uh, in terms of what you are uh, really focused on right now. Uh, and since it's on your website, would you would you mind discussing your diagnosis and then uh, getting into some of the research? Sure. So um I, I did I did put that out on the um the website. And the reason I did that is because I want autistic, children who have parents that are searching to realize that autistic children grow up and people are still autistic. And, you know, I'm nearly 60. So my generation, unless you were significantly needing a lot of support, Mm -hmm. people, people weren't diagnosed. People thought I was quirky and had bad social skills and was intense that sort of stuff, but you know, I, I didn't get a lot of support. 
Um, about the time that I was working for this rehab company and I got the big promotion and it was a national role, mm-hmm. I started flying around to hospitals and doing audits and I had to have meetings sometimes that had bad news, right? Sure. And so in these meetings, I would be super careful trying to just be factual, which, mm-hmm. and I've always been that my whole life. Here's the research. Here's what the law says. This is what we need to do. And so I've been in the role for about six months and I got a complaint or my, my manager got a complaint about um, my tone in a, in a meeting. And it wasn't what I said, it was how I said it and my facial expressions. And, and of course, at that time I had no idea, you know, the research sure. coming out wasn't there. And so I panicked because I'm I'm perfectionist. I really am. When I do something, I do it 110%. And so he told me to just brush it off. Don't worry about it. And just really focus on doing a good job, which I was. So, you know, I was working like 60 hour weeks, flying every single week. I missed family events and stuff like that. After this meeting, I got super anxious. And so I really started monitoring myself in these meetings. And a couple months later, I got another complaint from the same person. And um, this person wanted me, you know, at least if not fired, at least, you know, censored. And so my boss, who is just the most wonderful person, um, and I really respect them a lot, said, you know, instead of writing you up, we're going to send you to these um, he called him executive social training, right? It's basically mm-hmm. social skills for adults. <laughs> so, right, right. So I had to fly in every week and take these classes for a few weeks and um, read their books, listen to their videos. And so I practiced, practiced, practiced. And I thought, all right, I'm going to get this down. I'm a speech pathologist. This should be easy. I'll learn it. So took the classes and then literally did everything they said, including using the same Mm -hmm. uh, language they did all of that, trying to mirror people. Sure. And I got sick from it. I was, I was on pins and needles, just anxious Mm -hmm. all the time. And the thing is people didn't perceive me any differently after I had the social skills training. And so it made me feel horrible about myself. Mm -hmm. Just, sure. I, uh, you know, I, I, I just felt like awful and I got so sick that I, I, you know, quit working there. And then shortly after I got the diagnosis of cancer and it's stage four breast cancer into my liver and they didn't think I was going to make it. And, you know, this is five years on and I'm doing pretty good. So, right. um, anyway, I was, I had this, they diagnosed me at that time with anxiety disorder and chronic, I've always been anxious person my whole life, but, um, chronic anxiety. And I, I just, I, it made me physically ill. And so when I started the collective, which I started really getting involved in the neurodiversity movement around 2017, I started reading all this research that I had never read before about autism. Sure. And the more I read about it, the more I was like, I do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do that. And then I went for about 
a year and a half thinking, no, I'm imagining I'm, I can't be autistic. You know, I'm in my fifties. I have lived this whole. And so then the research would come out and I was like, I do that. I do that. (laughs) And so finally, just for my own peace of mind, I had a formal diagnosis done, um, Mm. went through all the testing and sure enough, in June of 2021, I got my official your autistic stamp on there. Um, to say it was life-changing is just an understatement. Mm-hmm. At first, I was super angry. For about six mm-hmm. months, I was really struggling, not with the diagnosis, but with the way that I had been treated all my life um, because of my social skills and my presentation. And I realized, you know, it's something that I can't help. Um, it's, it's, it's just me. And no matter how hard I try to appear not autistic in my social communication, it's not, it's not going to change. And what I, what I went to in the first study that I ever read was, um, from UT Dallas, Dr. Noah Sasson, Mm -hmm. um, who's brilliant. Anyway, um, he he and his team put out the study, Thin Slice Judgments. And what it was saying was they, they did these experiments with autistic adults and non-autistic adults. And across the board, the non-autistic adults came out unfavorably. And it wasn't what they said, <laughs> it was how they said it. Even when they turned off the the speech and you just saw the mannerisms, People automatically had, um, they, they didn't want to interact with them as much. And what the most interesting thing out of that study to me was they said that even, and I, I don't have the quote memorized, but it was basically, even though children had gone through social skills all the way, you know, our kids start kindergarten, at least maybe even earlier. And so they go through these social skills training. And then by the time they graduated, they still looked autistic. Well. If yeah. you've ever worked with pediatric population, you know I had you know I followed kids up, especially in private practice, and those high schoolers and young adults, they might be able to mask a little bit better, but they're they they're still autistic, right? And so, so after I went through the angry period, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put all of this to work. And I before I was an advocate, and now I I can legitimately say I'm an activist within this movement. Sure. So. I think it's an, it's an incredible story. And I think one thing, that, one question that comes to mind is how is an adult diagnosed? So you still, you go through the same battery. I mean, they didn't do intellectual testing, um, I guess, I guess I could have paid for that, but I wasn't worried about my cognitive abilities. Sure. I mean, I, right. I do, I do have different cognitive processing. I will, I will say that, but I wasn't worried. I mean, I went through grad school, owned sure. a business, um, but you have to go through all of the other, it took four months, battery oh, of wow. tests. Oh yeah. It's not just a light thing. And um, there are more adults, um, especially in the circles that I'm in, Mm-hmm. And especially even speech pathologists are my age mm-hmm. and and maybe a little bit younger and definitely older are doing the diagnosis, not because it's going to 
you know, we're going to need services or something like that. It's more for me, it was just a validation of my lived experiences. There's a reason for them other than just, you know, I, I'm horrible with social skills. So yeah, I like that word validation for it. It was was validating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my husband was diagnosed as an adult with ADHD and it was Mm -hmm. a similar thing for him. He's like, Oh, that's why all of this was hard. That's why I, you know, did horrible in high school. That's why all, all of these things, that's why it took me nine years to finish my bachelor's degree. (laughs) (laughs) And, and for him, even now, it's not that he always treats it. Um, he kind of self-medicates with monster energy drinks, but other than that. It's it, but it still is like a validation and an understanding. Like I know I have to get his attention before I say something. I know he's not just ignoring me, and so I think it also helps those people around you too for that level of understanding and acceptance as well to have a name to put to it. Sometimes, well, it depends on the people around you, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yes, but so, for those closest, I think sometimes yeah. it it's good to just be able to give it a name. And I know I've heard that from, you know, our parents of young kids too, when they get the diagnosis, they're like, I already knew, but it's nice to have that validation and a name for it. Right. So Julie, what do we as speech language pathologists need to know? From what okay. you are seeing? Well, I actually, I took some notes because I'm, I'm better with my notes. So I'm going to pull those up really quick. The first thing I want to say about the question you asked me on paper was what are SLPs missing in terms of serving children and adults who are neurodivergent? Yeah. The first thing I wanted to say is I don't think I, and I've never thought that the SLPs get it wrong because they don't care or sure. they they're doing it. Well, I, I've never thought that. I, I think the biggest deal is, and it's I, I can understand that it's a time and an access thing, but I don't think the autism research that really matters is getting to SLPs quick enough. Because if they were reading the research and knew it, they would they would totally change the way that they're practicing. So some of the things is sensory trauma is a real thing. So one of the first things I do with a new um, autistic student, I I learn what their sensory triggers are and I learn what their needs are um, so that we can adapt the environment as much as possible. And then also because if they know their own sensory triggers and their sensory needs, it can help them develop self-regulation skills to know that, okay, here I need supports, I need air defenders or I need this or that. Um, and also be triggering about when they're going into certain situations that that helps tremendously with, you know, what a lot of people call challenging behaviors. Mm-hmm. The second thing is AAC is vital, even for our speaking clients and students. And the reason for this, um, and I forgot the, the oh gosh, Alyssa, I forgot her name. She is doing the most amazing um research with with teams on speaking adults using AAC. A lot of autistic people prefer, and I do, I will tell you, I prefer typed communication over verbal, not because I don't like talking, but because I can sit there and think and process and 
of course, then I'll send the email and then I'll process it a hundred times more because I'll reread it. But right. But the thing is, for a lot of autistic people, because of the way we process language, typed communication especially is easier. But even with my young students, um, kids that are that they can speak, but they're in a moment of crisis or um, overwhelmed or something like that. If you pull out even low tech AAC and they're shutting down or they're melting down and you just, they can tell you what's going on. And it really helps um, just with the whole quality of life for them, but not only for them, for the people around them as well, because they have a way to communicate when they're in trauma. So that's one thing. Um, (laughs) And this, I mean, when I do trainings, I always talk about this. Compliance is not authentic communication. (laughs) So working on authentic communication Mm -hmm. is is super important. And then, um, of course, I've gone into social skills training. It doesn't work. Um, The bottom line you should ask yourself, and this this is kind of down and dirty training, but every time you write a goal, you should ask yourself, Does your goal center on maximizing the comfort of the people around the autistic person? So, you know, are you targeting stemming or eye Mm -hmm. contact or turn taking or all of that to make the people around that autistic person feel better? And if you are, what is that doing for the autistic person? Right. Right. Yeah. What what outcomes are they going to have? Are you increasing their ability to communicate effectively? You know, and and of course with our autistic kids, um, a lot of times we're working on the same things we're working with other other autistic kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the first one. And the, and then the, the number one thing you should always ask yourself is what are the short time, short term, and long term mental health outcomes of this goal. Okay, the kid might learn to turn take back and forth and and talk on someone else's preferred topic for how many turns, but what what are they going to feel about themselves and what are they going to always be running in their head? I don't communicate right. I don't do this. Mm -hmm. I need to defer to what other people like and please them. And then you grow up and you're this horrible people pleaser and you lose all sense of boundaries you get taken advantage of. And there's all these studies that have come out that talks about the victimization of autistic people. And I haven't seen any research that specifically ties it in to the therapies, but if you're teaching a kid that they must comply all the time, immediately, here's your Scooby snack. You did this. Here's your, you know, and you have to comply, comply. Then you, you lose a sense of your own boundaries and you you always defer to someone else. And why wouldn't that set you up for victimization? Right? Very good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I a little bit of my where I'm coming from and background right now. And I'm um I work at a school that is a charter school and it's a technical charter school. So there's lots of kids that want to go into engineering and computers and science. So because of that, they tend to attract a lot of kids that would fall into the category of low support needs autism. And Mm -hmm. so that's um, one of the populations that I'm working with. And I, you know, I 
I heard one thing that I was doing right, at least, because I do when I'm teaching my kids how to self-advocate, I'll ask them, I'm like, hey, if you need to ask your teacher for this, do you feel more comfortable doing it in person or do you want to practice writing an email? So even in that, that small way and using those other options for them to do. One thing that I sometimes get frustrated with when I'm in neurodiversity um, and I'm I am doing my best to be a neurodiversity affirming therapist as well. But one thing that I get frustrated with is sometimes I always hear like what not to do when I go to trainings and I come out and I'm just like, I just feel like I'm doing everything wrong and I don't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. So when I, when I think about what are you, what are you doing? Okay. First of all, when you're working with an autistic child and they don't, or a young person and they don't have, a lot of support needs, you need to first ask yourself, do they really need to be in therapy? Right. Seriously. Do they need to be in therapy? And I think that's one of my questions too, is then what do you do when you have those teachers that are coming back and saying, well, he, I can't teach my class because they're always interrupting or just when there's that, like that functional things that are happening in the classroom are keep coming back, even though when I'm like, well, does he really need to do that? And I've I've deleted many I took contact goals off of kids. <laughs> okay, so what I do, and you know, I work in charter schools too, and I have several campuses, and I, I because I'm contracting, I go, you know, inherit yeah. all these new ca- campuses all the time. I always provide education, and if you go to my website, um. There's a there's a whole list of like 40 freebies you can download. And there's even okay. a book that's geared toward it's geared towards parents, but it would be good for teachers too, that talks about the research coming out and the neurodiversity movement, yeah. the double empathy problem, monotropism. Um, if you haven't heard that term, monotrop, when we talk about special interests and the kids that struggle with transition, the that is monotropism. And it's it's actually been around since 2005, this theory of monotropism, but I hadn't heard about it until about 2017. And so, and, you know, I'm looking for this stuff. So if I hadn't heard about it, I'm assuming that most educators and SLPs, they don't know what monotropism is, but if you learn about it and you learn about the double empathy problem, you learn about autistic masking and camouflage, Once you get that research in your head, there's no way you can go back to practicing how you used to, first of all, because it's not evidence-based. But second of all, when you can really see the perspectives of the people that are at the receiving end of your treatment or your intervention, right? I I just ethically couldn't do it anymore. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I mean, I run into this too. In fact, today I I had an IEP meeting that I didn't necessarily um wasn't happy with the results. And you know, I don't I don't always win every battle. Some of my right. kids, even though I write absolutely the antithesis of social skills goals, there'll be a LSSP or a teacher that'll say, we're gonna put them in social skills training and they're gonna learn eye contact and turn taking. And so what I do is actively write goals to counter those. They're going to learn about boundary setting. They're going to learn about self-advocacy. They're going to learn about autistic identity. And 
uh, masking and camouflage and what that can do and situations where, you know, you, you can advocate for yourself in those situations. I I think teachers, they just don't know, right. They just don't know. And also, and, you know, I can go off on a tangent on this. I, and I've been in out of public schools for 24 years. I think that autistic kids overall are over scrutinized things that right. other kids get away with, you know, right. a teacher won't even say anything because the autistic kid is not behaving perfectly. Right. It They're just pointed out more. They, yeah. And they're attributing it to like, yeah, not, not typically developing, but because of their autism kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I even see that in evaluation reports when I, when I get an evaluation report and they're, they're saying things like, but this four-year-old doesn't have theory of mind. And I'm thinking, how many other kids do you know? Did I want to say developmentally, is that even appropriate or, or sarcasm and things like that? And I'm thinking you just took out your autism checklist and put it all in the report and you didn't go to see if that even is developmentally appropriate Mm -hmm. for kids Mm -hmm. that aren't autistic. So I've seen that in treatments as well, where you're like, well, they couldn't, they're two and they didn't sit at the preschool for three hours participating in the, at the table in activities. And I'm like, have you seen a (laughs) (laughs) two-year-old? Nobody should. Well, I don't even think kindergartners should be sitting at their desk all day. And I, you know, I just, if they're developmentally, their little bodies aren't, aren't set up for that. For that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Julie, one one question that I have is, taking all this into account, are there adjustments or do you have recommendations when you're doing things through telepractice, when you're providing treatment or diagnostics through telepractice? How can we yeah, and so, accommodate? Um, I learned I learned through just trial by fire with uh, COVID, basically, because everything overnight went to Zoom. I think you have to honor your autistic students and and young people's differences. So like we would have, I I had, had a group of autistic middle school girls that year. And I actually wrote, I wrote an article about it because I was just so pissed off at all their goals. And so the the girl, once I, you know, told them we don't need to work on eye contact, when we went to on video, she said, I really don't feel comfortable having my face on this video. She said, it's all I can think about. And I thought, well, what would it hurt if we turn off this camera? You know, is she going to just leave? She didn't. She participated in therapy just as much as she would have with the camera on. Um, I will say like my, my assistant had this, we, we had this brand new kindergartner, newly diagnosed autistic, and she was wanting him to sit in front of the camera and do all. And she, and she came, Christy came to me and she's like, I just can't do therapy. So what are you doing with this little one? And she said, you know, we're doing, you know, this activity and mom's there. And I said, but he can't sit. And so she goes, well, what do we do? So I went in, I went on camera with her and I, we got some music because he was working on um, following directions and body parts and stuff like that. 
And once we got the music and he was doing the dances and following along, his behavior totally changed and he was into it and his language took off. And so it's just kind of going that um, another time. And this was again during COVID, I was testing a high school um, autistic kid who um, was cognitively challenged. He he wasn't severely, um, but he w- but he had some cognitive challenges. And so I'm I'm doing his reevaluation, and he kept turning off the sound. And I at first I'm like, what what is he doing? You know. And immediately I was thinking, okay, someone else would think he's being non-compliant. So I've got to think outside the box here. So he would turn it back on and then he'd turn it off. And, and I'm sitting here trying to do a castle with him, right? Which is really involves There's so many oh, yeah. components to it. And so finally I said, honey, what are you, what are you doing? And he said, Oh, there's construction going on behind uh, me in my apartment. And every time they turn on the power, I didn't want to hurt your ears. <laughs> and wow. I just thought, oh my gosh, what if I wouldn't have asked this kid and I would have just mm-hmm you know, jumped on him and said, you have got to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess it's just thinking outside the box. Um, another kid, I was t- gifted autistic kid. I was, um, he started getting bored in the testing. And so he was starting to shut down and not talk. And so mm-hmm. I was really frustrated because I thought, God, I've, I've got to get this evaluation done. I'm on this timeline. And I thought, what can I do? So I just stopped and sat there for a minute. And then I started typing to him and said, what's going on? And so he typed back. And then, so I started asking the questions and he would type his answers back. And so I didn't score the test obviously, because it wasn't standardized, but I got enough information to go ahead and do my evaluation Mm -hmm. and accommodated this kid's needs in the moment as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just kind of going with the flow and let I always tell my assistants this: the minute you let go of trying to control somebody else's behavior, that's when communication and connection begin. And it, it, they found it true. So, yeah, that's what I had um, one session where the a teacher who could like monitor the child's computer that I was on. He she emailed me and was like, "Just so you know, he was playing Tetris the entire time." <laughs> that you were working with him and I was sitting there and I was like really because that was like the best he's ever paid attention in any session that we've had <laughs> right and I've, and so and I've even adjusted that I know I've even adjusted that and I tell kids like if if I know that they have the need to like do be doing something with their hands mm-hmm. or I have lots mm-hmm. of fidgets in there for them but there's some that if I didn't let them do something like Tetris, I had a kid that would every five seconds would try and change his background and would be pushing buttons using like any button on Zoom that he could find. He was pushing it to see what happened on it and chatting with other students when he shouldn't have been. I let him play Tetris. He stopped doing all of those other things. <laughs> right. You know, when I'm um, well, I've done I've done a lot of trainings this last year Um for, for speech pathologist. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I always start out by saying is if you need to get up and use the restroom, if you need to be on your phone, I am not going to assume that you're not listening to me. And so when you go back to your students and your clients, don't assume just because they're not looking at you or focused on this, you know, the whole body listening thing that they're not paying attention 
The best way to, to find out if they're paying attention or not is to find out, ask comprehension questions about what you just went over. If they can answer it, right, then they're listening. And yep. maybe they're they're listening even better if they're playing Tetris or <laughs> you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So Julie, I wanted to uh not let you go without asking your opinion about mm-hmm. some of the behavioral therapies that a lot of SLPs are doing. Um, yeah, I do have opinions on that. Um, <laughs> and I've, I've tried to be less militant and I think I have gotten that way as I've, I get, I don't know, gotten older because I've never liked ABA. Even when I had a private practice between 2000, uh, I think I started in 2003 and I closed it around 2013. I when, and I was in a very wealthy area in Houston. That's where my clinic was. And I would have all of these parents come in with their ABA tech and they would literally feed the kid M&Ms or whatever, goldfish right. as I'm doing. And I, it was driving me crazy. I just, you know, cause it just didn't feel natural. And I got to the point where I kicked them all out. I said, you can't bring these behavior aids or I don't know what they were calling them at the time, but you can't bring these people into my clinic. You, we're not going to do therapy. And I always have done therapy where the parents can be in there. I feel like it's really important so that parents, first of all, know what's going on with their kid, but second of all, can see what you're doing and see what their kid is capable of doing so they can they can do it at home. That said, when I started to read quantitative research from autistic people about their lived experiences with ABA, yeah. once you know how people feel, you could never do that to a person. Um, I don't know of any autistic organization, and I know of several all over the world, especially in the Western countries. There's not one that their goal is not to to just get rid of ABA right. altogether and, and PBS. There's a huge movement in the UK. Um, Ireland, actually, this last spring, I can never say what their government is called, but it's a it's a division of their government, and they were trying to learn, align disability services with the United Nations disability there, to line it up. Mm-hmm. And they they used information off my website about PBS, mm-hmm. so I'm actually cited in an Irish government study, which or government paper, which was kind of cool. Um, they said it is not a therapy technique that is good for disabled people. And they, they cited all of these reasons why. And the the primary reason is because the disabled people didn't want it done to them. Right. You know, I feel like it is one of those things that we, a lot of people had this like gut feeling about it. Like Mm -hmm. you were talking about that. It just, you didn't like it and you, it didn't feel naturalistic and you didn't know exactly what it was and then it was like all the research started to come out and we're like yes that fits with what i was seeing and feeling about it as well well that plus i mean you've got researchers like bottoma butel you know kristen bottoma butel at a university of boston i think she is mm-hmm. um i think she was at asha last year i think she spoke asha maybe um anyway she and her lab have been doing these long-term meta-analysis studies of mm-hmm. 
autism and they found out, first of all, the research is poor. When you take away bias Mm -hmm. um, and you take away conflicts of interest, which you think about it, most ABA research, they're trying to sell whatever product it is or therapy it is. So if you take those two things away, there, there's no, there's really no outcomes that prove that it actually works. So that's the first thing. And then there's been all of these ethics studies that have come out. Even the medical association, the AMA published something recently. Um, Kennedy Krieger did a, did an ethics. All of these different places have said ethically, this therapy is not something we would do to humans. And I, I think if, the SLPs listening to this, if they would look at how ABA started out with Lavos in the UCLA, go back to the 60s and read the Life Mag, I think it's 65, the Life Magazine article, where he talks about autistic children in the most humanizing terms. And then you get to the 70s and he's doing, you know, conversion therapy for feminine boys, right? And at the same time, he's doing experiments on these poor autistic kids. When he, um, I don't know if you if you've heard the Kirk Murphy story, Anderson Cooper, CNN. I don't know. He was the he was mm-hmm. the kid in the 1970s that Lavas was doing the feminine boy study on, and this this boy, the things that he went through, it still makes me cry, were horrific, and he ended up killing himself as an adult. Um, and his sister attributed directly to what he went through as a child and the way he was treated. And so during the seventies, gay rights activists stopped that program at UCLA. It took a while, but they did the government cut Lavasa's funding and things like that. Mm-hmm. But he kept on with autistic children because I guess they were less human than feminine boys. I don't know. Um, but if you start and you read how that research started, it is conversion therapy. It's you need to hide autistic traits, pretend that you're not autistic and react as a non-autistic would. And so all of these like um, autistic self-advocacy network, and then the ones there's one in Canada, there's one in the UK, there's one in Ireland. They are all actively trying to get rid of ABA because they call it conversion therapy. Hmm. As, as you would like, you know, like LBGTQIA mm-hmm. now, the, and I don't know about your states, but in mine, it's still a thing, conversion right. therapy. Um, they're saying it's the same thing. You're trying to turn an autistic person into a non-autistic person, which is just unnatural. Yeah. You know, can't. Mm-hmm. That's That's exactly. a really different way of thinking. It makes sense when to say it that way, but that's not something, a comparison that I've heard before. Mm, well, you're probably not hanging out with radical autistic. <laughs> <laughs> so. Get some radical autistic friends. I know. need Come some on. more for sure. We have Julie now, so we have yes. to add to that. <clears throat> yes. But I mean, if you go into autistic spaces, and that's what I did before I was ever diagnosed, I went into actually autistic spaces and I listened and I didn't say a word. And when I, because I send my parents to these groups and I say, whatever you do, lurk, 
do not open your mouth on, you know, mm-hmm. typing. Just listen for about six months and then you start to learn. And that that's how I really got involved. So. Well, Julie, we, we want to be uh, very protective of your time. And so we, we do thank you for joining us. Would you mind uh, sharing your website and how people can reach out if they want more information? Sure. It's Therapist Neurodiversity Collective. Um, if you just Google that, it'll it'll come up because there's tons of pages. There is there are tons of free resources. Um, I don't I don't think I said this. I run the collective pro bono on top of mm-hmm. working. I don't take in any income. So like the therapist memberships, the people that pay, all of that goes back in to pay speakers. And then we also offer um very, very low cost classes for people that don't want to join the collective. They're like $10 and you're getting cutting edge research from researchers that are right and doing all of this amazing stuff like Noah Sasan, Monique Botha, all of those people. So there's that. And then I'm also involved in a, it's a PCORI grant thing right now. Mm -hmm. And so we are studying how to flip the, the autism narrative. So switch from cure and eugenics to quality of life and mental health. Yeah. So that's awesome. Well, good luck with everything you're doing and uh, please, please come back and talk to us more about this. This is an extremely important topic. And, and like we've said, SOPs and, and other allied health professionals aren't hearing enough about this. Yep. Well, thank you for inviting me. I was kind of surprised. But I really appreciate it. I want to thank Julie for joining us on the podcast and for sharing her story of someone who is neurodiverse and also a speech-language pathologist. And she, as she mentioned, has become such an advocate for others who are neurodiverse themselves. And so I think we as clinicians need to listen to individuals that have live with this diagnosis and listen to their concerns and what actually works. So thank you again, Julie, for joining us, and I wish you continued success. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Telepractice Today. If you don't mind, leave us that five-star review. That helps us to attract new listeners, which is what we want to do. And until next week, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.